0: on Here, okay, we are. Uh, we will be starting today in uh, Genesis chapter 20, uh, having finished several weeks in uh, chapter 19, the story of Lot uh, and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, the story moves on now, and we return uh, our reflections to uh, to Abraham. Uh, but before we do that, last week we looked at uh, uh, quite a bit of the last chapter. We, I think we started in about uh, <clears throat> verse 26 and went down through the end of the chapter. So what do you remember that we talked about last week? He
1: didn't want to go to the mountain. He didn't want to go to the door, But he ended up going to the mountain.
0: Why? He got scared.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, we're going to talk about somebody else being scared today too. But yeah, he got he got afraid. I I I I never really figured that totally out. The Lord told him he would protect him and and that he would spare Zor, but apparently the judgment came so close he he wasn't sure he was still safe. I'm I'm not sure he was accustomed to trusting the Lord. <laughs> so. What else?
1: Mm hmm.
0: Uh, uh, Peter. Okay. Yeah.
1: It's hard to gather them because make the hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
0: but,
1: I don't
0: know. That's Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you were in Florida when we answered that question. <laughs> yeah. You missed that. You missed that Sunday, but it's on the Internet. But uh, uh, yes, he is righteous and is very clearly declared him to be righteous. And when we started in chapter 19, we actually looked at several things, even in chapter 19, that showed that he is a righteous man. Uh but you, you, have to, you have to look for it because <laughs> it's not real obvious because he makes so many bad mistakes and he makes so many compromises in his life. But we had stressed, uh, and it's good you brought that up, because we had stressed the importance in studying the life of Lot. It's important that we recognize that he was righteous because if we don't recognize he's righteous, then we will fail to see the, the capability that we as righteous people have to make the kind of mistakes that Lot made. And he makes a whole parcel of them. And, and so it is instructive to us to see that even people of faith and people who are righteous can make a lot of really serious mistakes that have devastating consequences on their family and their relationships and things like that. And Lot is a classic example of that. So, yeah. And you isn't in church,
2: if believe in Christ, we are righteous. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he makes that very clear with Lot. He not only testifies that, he right, that he's righteous, but he saves him. He, he rescues him. And he uses Lot as an example that God is able to save the righteous, preserve the righteous, and, and, and judge the wicked. And he's able to do that. And he makes it very clear that, that, that God had mercy on, uh, on, on Lot because of his faith. So it's... Uh, he's,
2: he's
0: uh, it, it could have been, but we don't want to go there, Charles. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll call Margo and ask her that question. <laughs> Anything else that you want to bring up from last week? We discussed
1: that earlier in our Sunday school class. We're going to hopefully back on the next
0: uh y- yes, 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 That's right, that's right.
1: uh huh. uh Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is really remarkable when you think about the origin of the Moabite people that it's through the Moabites, through a, through a Moabite woman that the Messiah ultimately comes Yeah. What else? Okay. Okay. So it wasn't just a furtive glance over her shoulder <laughs> that cost her her life. It's that she was lingering back. She was she was she was staying back and she was behind a lot. So when Lot arrives safely in Zor, she's still in the in the, in the area of destruction. And she looks back and she contemplates and she desires and she longs for the world she's left behind. And she gets caught in the judgment of God. Yeah. You look, Mike, like you're on the verge of saying. something.
1: I, I don't know if you discussed it. I've always wondered why she turned into a pillar of salt and then she looked back why like, did he just hit her with a brimstone or something? I mean, why was the salt I mean, it's so
0: different I mean, well I, actually I think he probably did I think she did get caught in the fire and the brimstone uh, uh, several commentators suggest that because of the proximity to the salt sea a lot, of, a lot of rocks and objects that are real close to salt sea get encrusted by the salt from the salt sea and, and they assume that that's basically what happened with her so yeah Anybody else? Anything else from last week? Remember we talked about how far it was, how, in some ways how short of a distance and yet how far it was from, from the tents of Bethel to the cave in the mountains of Moab. That Lot started in, in, uh, in his tents there with Abraham at Bethel when they separated, when they parted ways and he left Bethel and he left the presence of the blessing bearer. And he begins to compromise in his life, and ultimately he ends up in a cave in the mountains of Moab. And it's just such a stark lesson to us of the of the long term impact of long term compromise. You know. And uh, and I remember there's a, there's a little uh, uh, saying I've heard before, and I meant to share it last week, but I couldn't remember it exactly. And then somebody I heard it somewhere on the radio again this week. And Lot's life is an example of. This. Let me see if I can remember how it goes now. But it's uh, Sin will, uh, sin will always uh, take us further than we want it to go and uh, cost us more than we ever wanted to pay and and stay much longer than we ever wanted it to stay. And uh, that's, I think, a, a summary of Lot's experience in his life. But, and that's the end of the Lot story. We don't know any more about him than that. So we we're left with that very ugly scene there in the cave with his daughters anything else if not let's go on pick it up in chapter 20 it says now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur then he sojourned in Gerar Abraham said of Sarah his wife she is my sister so Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he himself not say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also have kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. Okay, that's... uh, all the further we'll get in the story today, which leaves us at a very unsatisfactory point, of course. But, but uh, there are a number of things for us to think about. Okay? So we're, we're now finished with the story of Lot. And, uh, and uh, the narrator, uh, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, draws our attention now uh, back to Abraham. And, and he begins here in verse 1 by telling us more about Abraham's sojourning or Abraham's moving around in the region of the land of Canaan. And he goes uh, from where he was in the Oaks of Mamre, which was uh, up... Uh, if Maybe I should diagram this a little bit so we can kind of get a geographical picture. If this, if this is kind of the bottom of the Dead Sea, what is now the Dead Sea. And, and this is... Uh, This is the Mediterranean over here and Sodom and Gomorrah. They were over in this area here. The Oaks of Mamre is up kind of roughly in this area. Uh, Shur is down here somewhere. Uh, Kadesh is right about here. So he travels from the Oaks of Mamre and he travels down somewhere here. And it says he settled here. This uh, markers uh, leave something to be there. He settles here somewhere between Kadesh and uh, and and Shur. Shur is basically the the wall of defense or the, the, the uh, Egypt, Egypt's eastern wall uh, of, uh, uh, of military defense. So he he settles there. He doesn't say for how long, but he settles there for a period of time. And then it says he sojourned in Gerar. And Gerar, we think, we're pretty sure, is right up here, uh, kind of on the southern tip of what is today Gaza. So we're always hearing about Gaza in the news today. And Gerar is kind of up in this area here. So he so he travels down. He comes down here to uh, uh, to the Negev, and then he comes back up to the to the region of uh, Gerar, and he sojourns in Gerar. Now, it's easy to skip verse one because it really doesn't seem like it's all that important. He really wants to get on. We want to get on to the story about Abraham and Abimelech and this whole encounter with Sarah. But I think it's interesting that the Lord. Puts verse one in there, and I think he does so for a reason. And and not just I certainly t- he wants us to be aware again of Abraham's travels, but I don't think that throughout the story of Abraham that the Lord has recorded all of Abraham's travels. It's he alludes to other travels that he makes that that he doesn't uh, detail like he does here. So it seems like the Lord is trying to just remind us of something here in verse one, okay, and and particularly i think that's true because we're just we're coming out of the story of lot okay and the thing about lot was that although he started out with abraham 25 years earlier and he left uh, he left with uh with abraham 25 years later and he traveled around with abraham eventually he got tired of this life of sojourning, okay? And he wanted to settle down. So as he moves over, he moves his tents over into the valley of the Jordan. Eventually, we find him settling down and buying a house and settling in there in Sodom. And and, and in contrast to that, then, when we get into chapter 20, we're reminded that here's Abraham. And he's 100 years old now, or close to 100 years old. He's been He's been moving around. He's been living out of a suitcase, so to speak, for 25 years. Okay, And and we are just reminded again of Abraham's willingness to live strictly by the promise of God. So that Hebrews tells us that he lived as an alien in the land of promise. So he's in this land that God has promised to him. He's in this land that God has told him to walk all over it. And he's walked all over it. And God has said, every place your foot walks, I'm going to give it to you. It's all his land. And yet Hebrews tells us that by faith, he lived as an alien in the land that he knew was his. And what that meant for Abraham was that he always had to live in tents. And that's what the writer of Hebrews stresses: that he, he lived as an alien, he lived as a tent, he lived in tents in the land of promise his whole life. He never did own any land in the land of Canaan, except for uh, at the end of his life a little plot of land that he finally bought so that he could bury his wife. But uh, but aside from that, Abraham lived his whole life just as a sojourner, and he really is for us a picture of. What our life is to be like, so today, when you all go home, put your house on the market, buy yourself a good tent and you know and uh, some good suitcases. you know well, no, obviously that's not what I mean, but the contrast between Lot and Abraham is that Lot wanted to feel at home in the world, and Abraham never wanted to feel at home in the world. Or at least he never did feel. I don't know. He may have wanted to at times. But he knew he wasn't at home in the world. So he, so he continued to live in tents and move around and never really have a place to call home. And so I, I think in one sense, what verse 1 does for me anyway, is it's kind of like a bath. After a really dirty job. <laughs> you know, when I come home in the evening after I've been out in the heat working, you know, in 95 degree heat and I'm all sweaty and dirty, and you know, there's nothing like a good shower to get cleaned up and feel refreshed. And that's what Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 does for me after that whole chapter 19. As I go, well, here's Abraham. And in spite of all this junk that Lot's been involved in and this whole ugly story of Lot, we come to chapter twenty, and we remember Abraham, and remember this guy who still is just being faithful day after day to live by the promises of God. Now we're going to look at something about Abraham that's not all that pleasant, okay? And we're going to we're going to take some time to think about it. And it's not the first time this has happened with Abraham, you'll remember, but but it is refreshing to remember. Here's a guy who was looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. And he was not going to be satisfied with anything less. And so even though he's a hundred years old, and even though he's been living out of a suitcase for 25 years, he is still unwilling to make the compromise that Lot was willing to make. Because he cherishes the city of God more than the city of man. Okay? Well, so, he goes, to, he goes down to, uh, uh, to the Negev for a while. He comes back to Gerar. And when he gets to Gerar, then it tells us something that Abraham did. What did he do when he got to Gerar? Okay. He said about Sarah, his wife, he said, she is my sister. Okay. And of course, at this point, we kind of, you know, what? Where's this coming from? Okay. And we remember back to what happened in Egypt, clear back in chapter 12, how he went down into Egypt and he did this same thing down in Egypt. And we remember the consequences of everything that happened down there in Egypt. And we're going, oh, Abraham, what are you doing? You know. Well. One of the things we need to ask ourselves is, why does Abraham do this? Why does Abraham, when he goes to Egypt and when he goes to Gerar, why does he do what he does? Okay. well, he doesn't really give us an explanation back in chapter 12 when he went into Egypt, why he did it when we get. To this story, he does give us an explanation, but it's not in this week's lesson. It's in the verses we're going to look at next week. Okay, But I want to cheat and go forward and look at those verses because we really need to understand some things about Abraham. And I think as we do so, we're going to find out, at least to me, I get kind of encouraged. I get encouraged about Abraham when I read his reasons, and then I think about what he did. Okay, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But if you go down uh, after he gets confronted by Abimelech uh, later in the story here, uh, Abraham seeks to explain himself. And he says in verse 11, Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God uh, in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she, became, excuse me, became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, "This is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother." Okay. So there's Abraham's justification or his explanation for what he did. So let's kind of back up for a minute. Let's go all the way back to Haran, 25 years earlier. And God comes to Abraham there in chapter 12 and He makes those really astonishing promises to Abraham. He says, listen, I want you to go out to a place that I'm going to show you and I'm going to bless you. Uh, he doesn't actually tell him he's going to give him that place then he waits till he gets there. But He says, you go out to the place I'm going to shall you and I'm gonna bless you, and I'm gonna bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed and and he makes all these wonderful promises to Abraham. But it's all conditioned on Abraham being willing to get up and leave his father's house in Haran and go out not knowing where he was going and follow the Lord. Well, ultimately, the Lord leads him to Canaan. And when he gets to Canaan, then the Lord shows him the land. He says, you see all this land as far as you can see. I'm going to give you all of this land. Okay. So this is the, this is the background for what's happening here with Abraham. So Abraham gets this instruction from God to get up from Haran and go. And he gets equipped with all these wonderful promises of God. So, if Abraham now is in Haran and he's packing his suitcase, getting ready to go, and he's talking to his wife, what does he tell her? Okay? Everywhere we go, you tell him you're my sister. Because we're going out to places where people don't fear God. Okay? Now, why did he want her to tell people that she was his sister?
1: So, he
0: so that he wouldn't be killed. Okay, and just keep that in mind for a minute. Okay, so that he wouldn't be killed. Where did he want her to say, she is my sister? She is, he is my brother. Everywhere. Everywhere. Okay. Okay. Now, there's the first clue, because you're probably thinking as you get to this story, you're going, wait a minute, Abraham, you did this clear back in Egypt 20 years ago and you saw how it turned out then. Why are you doing it again? Well, it's not just that he's doing it again. This is what he's been doing for 25 years. You see that? In other words, the scripture only records for us these two times. And I think the reason the scripture records for us these two times is because on these two times it happened to backfire. And, and the backfire was significant. okay? And, and so the Holy Spirit saw necessary to record these two times. But I think it's pretty clear that it was Abraham and Sarah's practice whenever they went into a new area that he would represent her as, as his sister. And, and I conclude from that, since we only have two records of there ever being any problem with it, that most of the time he got away with it. That most of the time there was no fallout. I assume that the first time he went down and settled there by the Oaks of Mamre, uh, I assume they probably told Mamre, uh, she is my sister. And he probably, Mamre probably didn't learn until sometime later. No, she's actually his wife. you know. But most of the time he got away with it. Most of the time, it didn't make any difference. So this was was the way Abraham and Sarah lived their lives for 25 years. Okay? Now, when we put it in that context, then it becomes really instructive to us about Abraham. One thing is, why... What was the motivation for Abraham to do this in the very first place before he left? And to make this agreement with his wife that they would do this everywhere they went. What is the motivation? Okay. In other words, fear. Right? He's scared for his life. Okay? He's afraid for his life. And And so, before he ever sets foot out of Haran, we learn something about Abraham. He's really fearful. He's really afraid for his life. He recognizes that he's going to be traveling in places where people don't fear God. And 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 it's very possible that his life could be imperiled because somebody might want his wife. Okay. Now, if you were in Heron and you were considering the possibility of packing up the car and you know and going out somewhere you don't know where but you know out there it's dangerous and people might want to kill you would you go everybody's quiet <laughs> why did abraham go because god told him to And I just learned something about Abraham in this. That here's a guy that no matter how fearful he is, he loves God so much that he's going to obey God. Now you say, well, he had all these wonderful promises of God. And he did have all these wonderful promises of God. And that, of course, is also part of the reason he goes. He goes because God told him to. He goes out of obedience. And he goes out of a hope of the promise. He goes out in faith. But you notice... That even though he had all those promises, he didn't assume that those promises meant that he would be kept physically safe. You see? Because he felt like he had to do something to make sure that he was physically safe. So in other words, he didn't really fully understand those promises. He knew they were pretty great promises. But he didn't really fully understand the practical implications of them and wouldn't for many, many years. He didn't even understand when he first went out that it, that it meant he was going to have a son by Sarah. You know, all that becomes clear many years later. Okay. So there are many aspects, practical aspects of the outworking of the promise that Abraham didn't know. But he does know that God has told him to go. And that God has made certain promises to him that if he goes, that God would do these things. And so Abraham, in spite of this tremendous fear that he has for his own life, says, if God said it, that's settled it. I'm going to obey God. And, and that's, I don't know about you, but that's really encouraging to me. Because all of us experience times in our lives when we have the same problem Abraham had, our, our lives are not really all fully integrated like they ought to be. We've compartmentalized our lives. But Abraham's love for God and his, and his confidence in God and his commitment to God, he was, in fact, Scripture says, a friend of God. Abraham's relationship with God was so strong that even though he felt that, that obeying God might imperil his life, he would not countenance the idea of not- obeying God, even though the fear he had was was really a lack of faith in itself and and this brings up an issue that we struggle with as uh, at least I struggle with and, and, I, and I'm pretty sure most of us do, is this problem of compartmentalization okay We tend to compartmentalize our lives, don't we? We put things in various boxes and we don't let them interact with each other. And one of the ways we do this, one of the areas we do this, is, is oftentimes in the area of our spiritual life. And what we see here with Abraham is that he's compartmentalized his life. He has, he has this compartment in his life where there's God and God is faithful and God speaks and whatever God says I do and, and, and I believe God and I love God and I trust God. There's that compartment. But he's got this other compartment over here and it has something to do with his kind of rubbing shoulders in the world. And, and when he's rubbing shoulders in the world, there are certain aspects of that, not always, but certain aspects of that where he's not really thinking about God. He's not really seeing things from God's perspective. And so, in this other area, in this other compartment of, of his life, he has to work things out for himself. He has to solve his own problems. Okay. And what God wants us to do is he wants us to learn to integrate our lives. Because we have these compartments too. So we come to church and we sit here in church and we interact with people at church and we, you know, and and and, and we do it all very spiritually and, and I don't mean hypocritically, we really do love God. And we really do love these people we sit around with in Sunday school class, you know, and we really do love God's word. Abraham did. okay. we really we really are sincere about all that stuff. But but it's very easy when we get up and we walk out of the church and we and we go to work the next day. It's very easy to let all that stuff kind of just slip off into its compartment and we get to work and suddenly we're no longer depending on God. And We've got to solve these problems ourselves, and we've got to work this through ourselves and we've got this compartment over here where 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 God's not really all that involved in our lives and and I think we all struggle with that to one degree or another and i think and I think there are wide extremes, and we have two classic examples here in scripture in two subsequent chapters. We have Lot, whose life was highly compartmentalized, okay, so that he was compromising all over the place and making carnal decisions all over the place and and where God was really a pretty small compartment in his life and then we have Abraham where God was really the dominant compartment in his life but he had this other little area over here and for 25 years he could never see through what he was actually doing and everywhere he went he did this and he just and he and he got away with it and I want to suggest you that on the two occasions where we would say he didn't get away with it in Egypt and Gerard I would suggest to you that those are times when Abraham thought that what happened actually vindicated him and vindicated his decision to do what he did. How is that? Well, remember the reason that Abraham says she is my sister is for fear that somebody's going to want his wife. And so in Egypt, when he goes down to Egypt, Pharaoh takes his wife. And he's going, man. I'm glad I didn't tell Pharaoh she, he was my wife. He would have killed me. And he's thinking, see, it worked. My scheme worked. And he's not realizing that in fact, it's really backfiring on, on him. And the same thing happens when he goes to Gerar. He goes to Gerar and, and, and he says, she is my sister. And sure enough, the king of Gerar, a guy by the name of Abimelech, sends and takes his wife, against Abraham's will apparently, takes his wife Takes her into his harem. He's going to get her all ready to marry her, okay? And Abraham's going, Man, I'm glad I didn't say she was my wife. He would have killed me. Well, Well, that's a good question. I want to address this. Why does Sarah even go along with this? okay?
2: How
0: old is Sarah? She's 90 years old. Okay. Now, now, 20 years earlier, it,
2: <laughs>
0: she's she's an Avon sales lady. <laughs> 20 years earlier, when she was in Egypt, in chapter 12, it specifically says that Pharaoh thought she was good looking. Okay, it doesn't say that about the king of Gerard. 20 years takes a toll. Okay, uh, you know, admittedly, she lives many more years. She's she's not she's not you know ancient. Like we think of ancient today at the age of ninety, but she's still old, and she has in fact referred to her back in chapter, referred to herself back in chapter eighteen in one translation as being worn out okay so that's what she thinks of herself, Yes.
2: God
0: to glorify God, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm not sure what your question is. It
1: may be Abraham is Baron, and uh, is that what you're saying? and, and you know that, what I'm saying? And that she can really does, have the time.
2: Does God prolong the coming of the promise through because
0: of Abraham's fear for the own life? Possibly. Uh, possibly, but we don't know that for sure. We don't know exactly why God prolonged it. I do think, I, I personally think that it was prolonged in part because of their of, of their scheme with Hagar and, and and the birth of Ishmael. That then he then had to wait for Ishmael to reach maturity before he could then have. So I think to some degree it was affected by that decision. How much it was affected by these decisions, I don't know because Scripture doesn't tell us. But you know, it's a distinct possibility. I think. Oftentimes the Lord is cause in our life to to wait to do things because because we keep interfering <laughs> with his plans, but we 'll see in a minute that that 's not always the case but but i uh, i I wouldn't know exactly which way to answer your question, but that you know it is something to ponder sure
2: a power to yeah long-heavy. yeah. And how it really just
0: yeah, we really do. When when you operate out of fear. And that's why over and over and over again in Scripture, God says, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Because He knows what kind of things we do when we're afraid. Well, so you all brought this question up, so let's address it. Why does Sarah go along with this? Why doesn't she just say clear back and hearing, who are you kidding I'm wearing a wedding ring, man. <laughs> and I'm going to make it known I'm your your wife. Well, she is submissive, okay? And Scripture makes a point of that. She's a submissive wife, okay? But let me point out to you that it doesn't... I'd like to hear what Ginger's saying to Mike right now. <laughs> I want to point out to you, though, that it doesn't... To Sarah, and for Sarah's safety, it doesn't matter what she says. In other words, she's going to end up in somebody else's harem anyway if somebody's determined to take her. Okay? So, the reason she agrees to go along with this is because it really won't matter as far as the end result for her is concerned. At least she doesn't, you know, thinking the way they're thinking. Obviously, it does. But thinking the way they're thinking, she's thinking, if somebody wants me as their wife, they're going to take me as their wife. If they think I am Abraham's wife, they will kill Abraham. I don't want them to kill Abraham. So I will say I am his sister. So she's doing it not only out of submission to Abraham, but out of a legitimate love and concern for Abraham. She wants to protect Abraham. It's not going to make any difference in the outcome for her. She's going to end up in somebody else's harem anyway. She thinks, okay, that's the way the carnal mind thinks. okay. so that's the way she's thinking. It doesn't make any difference to her. And because she loves her husband and because she's submitted to her husband, she wants to protect him. And so this is her way of protecting him. So that's why Sarah goes along with it. okay. so everywhere they go, then they do this. And then they have this incident in Egypt where it doesn't work out really well. But God intervenes and the, And Pharaoh has the uh uh Pharaoh finds out that uh that Abraham is married to her and and creates quite a bit of tension there, and then he basically pays him off and runs him out of egypt okay and uh eventually goes back <coughs> to Bethel okay but now we are in Gerar. and the circumstances here are similar but different okay so now he comes to Gerar and he's he does again this same thing. And this is not, remember, this is not the second time that he's done this. He has done this many times. And by now, he's probably forgotten that in Egypt it backfired. <laughs> because it's worked so well everywhere he's gone. He's just gone. She's he's my sister. and But nobody's tried to grab his wife and run with her. And so eventually, when he finds out he could live peacefully with people like like uh, Mamre, who he eventually becomes an ally with, and then he can say to her, say to them, Well, you know, actually she is my wife, you know, but, but you know, I, I, I say she's my sister for this, you know, and it all works out well for many years until he comes to Gerar. And he comes to Gerar, and he does this again, and once again it backfires. And the king of Gerar, a guy by the name of Abimelech, takes uh, takes Sarah then into his harem because he thinks she's only his sister. You know, that's you know, his sister. Okay. Now, the question is, why, uh, one question is, why does he take her? Okay. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Back in the day,
1: when you were when you an ally and you married into the ally and kinship and that kind of stuff, is it possible that he said, hey, okay, this guy has a lot of men, a lot of animals, a, a lot of... And he's, a, he's a, a, in our group if I, if I take a sister in my room, then exactly then their yeah exactly,
0: then I think that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, remember she's ninety years old, uh, as I said a few minutes ago, she has by this time said of herself, i'm worn out okay so she she i don 't think she's as beautiful as she was in Egypt twenty years earlier okay I think what's going on here is this is this is a, 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 a an alliance marriage okay that Abimelech's intention, and we find out later that he really does want to to establish uh, 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 agreements with Abraham. And he does later, uh, as we get on further in the story, we'll find uh, after the birth of Isaac that Abimelech and Abraham do go into an alliance together. Okay, So that that seems to be his motivation here, that he wants to take Abraham's sister... As into his harem, which would create an alliance then between Abraham and Abimelech. Abraham, remember, is this great, powerful chieftain. He doesn't own any land, but he's a very powerful chieftain. He's had military victories. He's extremely wealthy. Uh, he's got all these cattle. He's, very, he's apparently quite influential uh, at this point. And so it would serve Abimelech's interest to enter into a marriage alliance with Abraham. And so that's what he does. He goes and gets Abraham's sister and brings him it brings her into his hair. Okay.
1: I don't think, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a guy a few chapters back when Lot was taken and went after him with four teams. Now he's down here and he's taken widely. He's probably doing that. Do I'm scared, but just doing the thing consistently. I can not understand.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think the same thing. I'm going, I'm going. why don't you get your 300 guys and go after them, you know? But there is a difference in that Abimelech and, and the people of Gerar are in Canaan. They're the people of Canaan. And he's got to live with these people and all their neighbors afterwards. When he went after the four kings, they were from Mesopotamia. You know, when he cleaned their cloth, they just ran back to Mesopotamia. So it didn't have implications on his ongoing relationship. I don't know if that's the reason. But it it is an inconsistency that makes you go, Wait, Ram, what's going on here? Why don't you defend your wife for crying out loud? Uh, And maybe he did. Doesn't tell us, but maybe as soon as it happened, he went into prayer. I don't know. There
1: really was no um, evidence of anything but blessing God, besides one precious relationship and the relationship, because he came out wealthy. Yeah. And
2: um,
0: except for one relationship, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Abimelech, and incidentally, the name of Abimelech, we're going to come across that name again because this happened in Genesis 12 with Abraham in Egypt, and it happens here in Genesis 20 with Abraham in Gerar, but it's also going to happen with Isaac in Gerar. With a guy named Abimelech, okay, but don't think they're the same guy. Okay, the name of Abimelech is is probably a throne name, like the name Pharaoh or the name Caesar. Okay, so Abimelech is apparently uh, uh, the, the the just the designation, the name that the king of Gerar carries, like the king of Egypt carries the name Pharaoh or the king of. Of Rome carries the name Caesar, and you know you had a number of Caesars, you had a number of pharaohs, and you apparently have another a number of Abimelechs. Okay, so this is apparently his throne name. But he comes and he takes uh, he takes Sarah into his harem, uh, and then things just kind of take an ugly turn <laughs> for Abimelech. They take a great turn for Sarah and Abraham because it says in. Uh, Uh, well, first of all, before, we, before I do that, uh, jump up to verse 4. It says, Now Abimelech had not come near her. So, there is a period of time in which she's in his in his harem, but he's not had any kind of contact with her whatsoever. Uh, certainly no sexual contact. Then in verse 3 it says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night. Now, we have here a situation where Abraham, in an effort to, to keep things under control by the arm of flesh has really messed things up. And he's got a situation here that is really out of control. Now, I want you to stop and think for a minute about the significance of this event. This event is even more significant than the one in Egypt. Put it in its time context. Back in chapter 17, God came to Abraham. And wanted to establish uh, the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And in that whole interaction in chapter 17 with Abraham, he says to Abraham, At this season, next year, you will have a son by Sarah. Then we move forward into chapter 18, right before the, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And God and the two angels, the Lord and the two angels, come to Abraham there at the Oaks of Mamre. And, and while they're eating there outside his tent, the, the 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 men say to Abraham, where is your wife? And he says, she's in the tent. And they say to her, at the, the Lord says to her, at this time next year, I will come to you and she will have a son. So by this time next year, she will have already given birth. Okay. That's in chapter 18. Then we have the whole chapter 19 thing, Solomon, most of which takes place in one day. Okay. But then we have we have uh, the events there at the end of chapter 19 where Lot leaves Zor and goes up to the cave and you have all that ugly stuff goes on in the cave you know, over some period of time, a week or two or whatever. Okay. Now we turn to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, Abraham leaves the Oaks of Mamre and travels, takes time, travels down to the Negev, and it says he's settled there between Kadesh and Shur. So there's a period of settlement there where he's settled there. And then he leaves there and he sojourns in Gerar. So he's come to Gerar and he's in Gerar for a while and then this thing happens. Do you get my point? We are now moving very rapidly into that window When Sarah receives the ability to conceive. Which Hebrews tells us she did by faith. We are apparently now very close to, if not within, the month of Sarah's conception of Isaac. Now, this whole thing about Sarah being in somebody else's harem becomes very serious, doesn't it? Now we see what Abraham has jeopardized by his unbelief and by his fear. He has jeopardized the very covenant promise of God. And now the situation appears to be completely out of control. Now, should Abimelech have sexual relations with Sarah and she conceives... Then Sarah's son will be an heir of a Philistine king, rather than the heir of Abraham and the heir of the promise. But even if they do have, if, they, if Abimelech and Sarah have sexual relations and she doesn't conceive, and perchance somehow she ends up back with her husband, then whose son? is born to them. Do you see the confusion? Do you see the the disaster we cause when we act out of fear, when we compartmentalize our lives and we don't don't integrate the Lord into every dimension of our life? So this is a very serious thing. The, The very covenant of God, the very... The very promise of the covenant is hanging in the balance here on this night when Sarah is in Abimelech's harem. And it's apparently now, for whatever reason, out of Abraham's control. And, you know, I don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us, but I have to wonder, what was Abraham thinking through that long night? Was he going back and remembering all those things that God had said and then going, man, have I ever blown it? What have I done, God? And then come to the most wonderful words in all of Scripture in verse 3. But God. It reminds me of ephesians and Paul goes on and on and on about um and he goes on uh, what is it ephesians uh, uh let me look at it so I get it right ephesians two um, <coughs> let me flip over here um, <coughs> Yeah, I'm trying to find the verse. Oh, here it is. Okay, great. Yeah, uh, Paul goes on and on there in the first verses of, of chapter 2 about the condition we were in, how we were all formerly led in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. And then comes those same two wonderful words. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, and the transgressions made us alive together with Christ. When we have, when we have totally messed up everything. When when our foolishness has has completely messed everything up, and it looks like through our folly and our foolishness and our unbelief and our doubt and our fear that we have messed up the promise of God, and that. There's no way God could do in my life now what He wanted to do. There's no way that God could do through my life what He originally wanted to do because I've messed it all up. At that time, the testimony of Scripture comes to us and I think we can sum up after Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, I think we can sum up all the rest of the Scripture in these two words, but God. Abraham has made a complete mess of things. And it is quite possible now that his wife, for whom he's been waiting to bear a child for, lo, these many, many, 50, 60, 70 years, however long they've been married, he's been waiting for her to have a child. And now, in a moment of stupidity and fear, he messes it all up and now she's going to have a child by somebody else. But God. But God. And God comes to this pagan, unbelieving king. This Philistine king. He comes to him in a dream of the night. And he says, Abimelech, you are a dead man. (laughs) Boy, that would end my dream in a hurry. (laughs) I would be wide awake. (laughs) You are a dead man because of the woman you have taken. She is married. Well, of course, immediately Abimelech kicks into high gear. Here, now, you know. And he's going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. and And he does an Abraham thing here. Did you notice that? Lord, are you going to destroy a whole nation that's blameless? He's starting to kinda of sound like Abraham here. Go back there in chapter eighteen. Lord, will you destroy a whole city if there's ten righteous? And and Abimelech's going, Lord now, notice how Lord is written there in your Bible. It's capital L small O R D. Okay, so it's not capital big capital L small capital O R D, which would be uh would be Adonai, uh uh did I get that right? I I got confused now. Okay, uh, but the point is, he he is calling him here simply uh, his master or his lord. He's recognizing that wh- whoever the God is that's speaking to him is greater than he is. Okay, he's not recognizing him as Yahweh. Okay, he's not recognizing Yahweh. He's recognizing him simply as a master. So it's not that he has a personal knowledge of God here. Uh, he is a pagan and, and and they worship other gods. But he's just recognizing whoever's talking to him is God. And he's Abraham's God. And I don't want to mess with this guy. And boy, listen, this isn't going to be fair if you destroy all that. And see, he recognizes what God is actually saying here. When he's saying you're a dead man, he's saying you're all your people are dead. That's what God's saying. And I go, well, wait a minute, God. Now, come on, let's be reasonable here. You know, it's not not all the people of Gerard did this. Abimelech did it, you know. But it illustrates to us how... What is at stake here? It illustrates to us how dangerous this situation is. It illustrates to us here that the salvation of the human, entire human race is at stake. And God takes it very seriously. Because your Savior and my Savior is going to be a descendant of Abraham and Sarah. And so it is imperative here that this guy get the message. Don't you touch this woman? Well, he pleads his innocence. He says, he says, uh, in the integrity of my heart, and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And then God says to him, yeah, I know. I know. I recognize it in the integrity of your heart. Meaning, I recognize that, that you didn't intend to take a man's wife. Now, notice he doesn't say he's innocent. Abimelech claims integrity and innocence. God only allows integrity. He doesn't allow innocence here. And 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 you'll notice that God says of Abimelech, He says, you are a dead man, present tense. In other words, you are already under my judgment. And we know, we'll find out later in the story, he's already sick unto death. He's already been struck with an illness that will take his life. Okay, uh, And, and that will become clear as the story goes on. And it it just reminds, reminds us of what the Lord said to Adam and Eve in the garden when He says, the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And the verses we were just looking at in Ephesians tell us that we were children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, when we sin, we are already dead men. We are already under the wrath and the curse of God. And Abimelech is under God's wrath. Even though he did not knowingly take a married man, he is about to commit adultery. But God, knowing that he did not do so intentionally, says to him, Yes, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart. And for that reason, I have kept you from sinning against me. And I have not let you touch me. And then we discover that the very sickness that is God's judgment on Abimelech is also the very same thing, apparently, that's kept him from being able to go into Sarah. So it's also been God's mercy on his life. So God, in His great mercy, has had mercy not only on Abraham, but has had mercy on Abimelech. And He has actually prevented Abimelech From committing this horrible, horrible deed. And we learn something about God. He doesn't always do this. But sometimes He does this. Sometimes God actually keeps people from sin. In order that He can fulfill and complete His purposes. And His plan and His promise. We see an example of that in First Samuel with David. Remember when David had that whole thing with, uh, what was the guy's name, Nabal? Uh, and and uh, Nabal made him mad. And he, he, Nabal was wrong. He was a wicked man. He, and, and David got really mad. And he was going to go kill him. And he was on his way to kill him. And Nabal's wife came and intercepted David and said, don't do this. You're the king. and you the, Don't make this mistake. Don't kill this guy out of you. you know, God will take care of this. And David listened to her. And he didn't kill Nabal. And in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, he says to the Lord, he says, Lord, I thank you that you kept me from doing that. There are times by God's mercy when He just keeps us from sin. We're headed headlong into it. And many times we go on and God lets us sin. But there are times when there's too much at stake. And God in His mercy intervenes and He kept David from sin. In that case, it was the Lord keeping a righteous man from sin in order that He might fulfill in the righteous man His promises to him. In this case, it's God preventing even a wicked man, an unregenerate man from sin. He keeps Abimelech from sin because if Abimelech if a is allowed to sin in this area, it's going to have this devastating impact on God's promises to Abraham. And then I realize that God really is sovereign. In my life, He really is sovereign. And there is nothing that can happen that can thwart or destroy or undermine God's purposes and promises in my life. And the wicked may be out there and they may be running wild and they may be doing all kinds of things and it may seem like it's going to, it's somehow going to interfere with God's promise to me, but it's not. God's going to fulfill His promises to me and He's going to fulfill His purposes in my life and your life. And He has to. if He has to stop people from sinning to do it, He will do it. Sometimes He lets people sin in order to do it. But sometimes He stops them. But even in your own life, it's comforting to know that with God's promise on your life, God's purposes in your life, you know, we all know our our... Proneness to wander, as the hymn says. And so, oftentimes, I'm sure when we get to heaven, we're going to look back on our lives and we're going to go, Man, I came so close. And God just turned my car another direction or, or you know, caused somebody to say something different. You know, something happened that kept me at that moment from doing something that would have destroyed my life and kept me from fulfilling. And, and seeing the fulfillment of God's promise and God's covenant in my life. I
1: think I've kind of learned, I'm not I really you know, recently emphasizing my prayers, out of the Lord's prayer, where I kind of live by it and you know, released the temptation that goes evil started praying on honor for me, letting on my family so oh. as they get over it. You know, of course, we'll be able to resist temptation and not look at it, but there are times when God has tested Lord, Shut the door, yeah, but we must go there, yeah we need
0: something, yeah, and He promises that first corinthians ten thirteen there is no temptation taken you but such as is come to man. and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted more than you are able, so God promises that well, next week we'll go on, and we'll look at the rest of the story, okay.